Welcome to Eye on the Triangle with Sesha Hindi, a weekly glimpse into our community, bringing you news from the brickyard to your backyard. Good evening. I'm John Boyer, and here's what's coming up on the February 22nd edition of Eye on the Triangle. In news, a new outlook on healthcare battle, interviews with the local civil rights figures, Evans' editorial on bigotry, sports, and all the regular features are in store for the next hour. Good evening from the Glass Enclosed Nerve Center here at WKNC News. I'm Evan Garris, and here now our top local story at 7.01. WRAL reports that former Johnson County Assistant District Attorney Cindy Yeager pled guilty today to illegally dismissing traffic cases. Yeager admitted to 10 counts of obstruction of justice and altering official case records. She was ordered to pay a $25,000 fine and to surrender her law license. Yeager was indicted last March along with four other Johnson County attorneys and a deputy court clerk on charges of using illegal dismissal forms to have 36 traffic cases dropped. The New York Times reports that President Obama has released his plan for the health care bill. The bill is aimed at quelling tensions between House and Senate Democrats but does not make any new concessions to Republicans. The plan is strikingly similar to a plan passed by the Senate last December. Here's what White House Press Secretary Robert Gibbs said about the highly detailed plan in a press conference today. The president believes we have to do something about insurance reforms. Uh, the president believes we have to do something about the millions of Americans that don't have health care coverage. Israel is the target of international outrage over the covert assassination of a top Hamas official in Dubai last January, according to Al Jazeera. European Union leaders have strongly condemned what appears to be a political assassination staged by the Mossad, Israel's secret intelligence agency, in which a team of operatives used forged passports from European nations to enter Dubai and kill Mahmoud al-Mabu. Israel officials, Israeli officials rather, have neither confirmed nor denied these accusations. Our top Olympic headlines from Vancouver, America continues its dominance of the medal chart. Team USA has 24 medals, including 7 gold. Germany is close behind the U.S. with a total of 21, followed by Norway at 14. Canadians are heartbroken after the U.S. hockey team pulled a 5-3 upset to advance to the quarterfinals. Tonight's events include the ice dancing finals, freestyle skiing, and ski jumping. In entertainment news, we are still a few weeks away from the Academy Awards, but the 63rd annual BAFTA Awards took place last night in London. The Hurt Locker won Best Film, Best Actor went to Colin Firth for his role in A Single Man, and Carrie Mulligan took home the Best Actress for An Education. On this day in 1797, the Irish, in cahoots with the French, unsuccessfully attempt to... Uh, un- unsuccessfully attempt, rather, the last land invasion of Britain near Fishguard, Wales. On this day in 1980 at the Lake Placid Winter Olympics, the U.S. defeats the Soviet hockey team in what is called the Miracle on Ice. In 1997, Scottish scientists announced the successful cloning of Dolly the Sheep. Uh, birthday shout-outs today are, are go to George Washington, Ted Kennedy, Steve Irwin, and Drew Barrymore. Today is Celebrity Day in the Church of Scientology, uh, a holiday celebrating the founding of the Celebrity Centers and the Church's efforts to recruit stars. And now on to the weather. The rain from earlier today has mostly cleared out, but we're still dealing with mostly cloudy skies. One or two lingering showers could persist overnight, but nothing major. Our lows will be around 40 degrees. Think of tomorrow as a bonus day for warm weather fans, with readings once again very near 60 during the afternoon and skies mostly sunny. A cold air mass returns for Wednesday, taking temperatures back down into the mid-40s with another shot for rain showers probably late in the day. Overnight into Thursday, the computer models think that some snow showers are a possibility, 
but it's a bit too early to say how big of a problem that will pose. Right now, it's 50 degrees and overcast at RDU Airport. The time is 7.04. Remember, you can tune to 101.5 for a live English to Welsh translation of tonight's program. Or not. Eye on the Triangle continues with Tyler Everett and sports. Listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1 FM. I'm Seja Hindi. Next up, we have sports with Tyler Everett and Mike Austin. Mike is going to uh, help us figure this out. So That's right. Tyler, uh, I know you were paying a little more attention to NC State sports this weekend than I was. It was a pretty good weekend, wasn't it? It was a great weekend. One of the best weekends in recent memory for Pac fans, I've got to imagine. Uh, pretty much swept every, every sport that played this weekend, played well. Uh, men's basketball took down a ranked Wake Forest team, beat them by 14. Women beat uh, Carolina. Carolina's always a real good basketball team, kind of like the men. They're a little down this year, but that's still a big win. First time in three years for that. Baseball scored, I believe, 65 runs this weekend, which shattered the NCAA record for uh, for runs in a in a three-game series. It scored 32 on, on Friday on opening day against LaSalle, and then uh, so... Tyler, uh, I got to ask. Looking bright for baseball. Yeah, I got to ask. I mean, beating LaSalle isn't, isn't really the story. And once you score like 20 point, 20 runs rather, rather um, then at that point it's kind of a wash. But what exactly does that mean? I mean, is our, our offense isn't going to drop that many runs every weekend. But what does that mean for state fans? Um, Kind of a question mark to me. Uh, obviously, like you said, 30 runs is not something fans should expect or they will be sorely disappointed. But I think what it shows is depth because um, didn't look at the details, but I'd imagine our big hitters were out of the game after six innings, and that means the backups were coming in and swinging away and getting on base and driving people in. So obviously, I think if anything, it speaks to depth and it speaks to uh, the LaPa- the LaSalle pitching staff needs some serious work. Yeah. Um, well, Dallas Polk note. had a good weekend, didn't he? Dallas Polk had a great weekend. He uh, for his efforts, he got um, he was named ACC Player of the Week. The they named their first player of the week of the season, and it was him. He uh, his slugging percentage over the weekend was over a thousand at one one eight two, which is unheard of through three games. Granted, not not a whole season's worth of numbers, but still very impressive. Uh, on base was six six seven. That's uh, even two thirds of his two thirds of his at bats he reached base, and then ten RBIs in three games. Uh, those are Barry Bonds numbers from about seven years ago, aren't they? Those are huge. Yeah, so how about the women's team? What was that all about, beating Carolina? What's um, the story there? A game I didn't see there, but a, a huge win for Glantz. Um, State had not beaten Carolina at Carolina. I don't believe State had beaten Carolina, period, but I know they hadn't won at Carolina since 2007, so it had been a while. And uh, women also beat BC recently, so that's two wins in a row over over conference foes in the ACC, as in men's basketball, is a real strong conference in women's basketball. And uh, the ladies are 6-6 six and six in the conference now, and I believe I heard recently uh, NCAA projection, we all know how accurate bracket projections are sometimes, but had them as a nine seed, so... Nice to see them slide into if, the tournament. If, yeah, yeah, it'd be it'd be beautiful. To see uh, a little postseason basketball. <laughs> That's right. Something we're not used to. Uh, so, how about the men's team? I mean, I know at this point we're really looking for bright spots for next year, but I mean, a pretty good win this weekend. Yeah, a huge win. Um, considering the recent losses, it's not going to mean a lot. It's not going to vault us into first place. 
But um, Wake came in ranked, and uh, I believe this was the fourth or fifth time in a row State beat Wake in Raleigh. So a little a little trend there where the Deacons haven't been able to come out of the RBC Center with a win. But a 14-point win uh, went to the half, I believe, up double digits. Really took control of the game early and certainly wasn't a blowout. But State certainly uh, asserted itself throughout. Um, big key to the game, Ish Smith, the the uh, star guard for Wake is is probably going to be an All Conference player at the end of the season, if not All Conference. He'll certainly get some recognition. And State really uh, played very well on him, held him to six of sixteen shooting, and he had five assists, but he also had five turnovers. And for a guard that came into the game with a pretty overwhelming assist to turnover ratio, to, to force him into as many turnovers as assists was certainly impressive. And the overall team effort: five guys in double figures. Uh, I believe it was Smith, Gonzalez, DeGand. Um, Horner and uh, C.J. Williams. Uh, There's I would a bright have to spot check. To yeah, I, w- I would have CJ. to check. But um, I believe that's his season high. He's been real quiet this year. He came on a little bit at the end of last year, but been real quiet this year. And then came out Saturday, hit a number of jumpers. Not so much deep threes, but mid-range jumpers. Uh, looked confident on him, and they and they fell for him, which was which is positive for him. He's had some struggles lately. So the weight game is usually. We were talking about this before the show. Usually we play Wake last game of the season, but we have three more games uh, left in the ACC schedule and then the ACC tournament. What can we expect as fans from those three games in the tournament? If we've learned anything from this season, it's that whatever you're going to expect might very well be wrong. We, we right. beat we beat a, a top-10 Duke team, absolutely dominate them up and down the court, and then come back and lose, I believe, seven in a row in conference and then just when it looks like hope is lost, we come out and, and are pretty are, are relatively dominant over Wake Forest. So these last three games, who knows, are certainly beatable opponents. It's not the cream of the crop of the ACC that we're playing. I uh, believe for, it's Virginia Tech, Miami, and Boston College, yeah. or what we have, le- or what state has left going into the uh, postseason tournament. So uh, all three games very winnable. Only one of those at home. Uh, no game this week uh, at Virginia. Excuse me. At Miami next weekend, I believe. At Virginia Tech uh, next Wednesday, a week from Wednesday night, and then the season, f- the regular season finale will be at home against Boston College. And uh, Boston College has not had a great year. Virginia Tech beat us once pretty soundly. Miami, another team that hadn't played well. We haven't yeah. played them yet this year, so we'll nice, see. Nice to see. Um, nice to see C.J. Williams stepping up. Hopefully, some of those younger guys will get some more minutes. Would you say this NC State season has been a catastrophe? I would not call it a <laughs> catastrophe. There's. Uh, Quite a disaster occurred in Haiti sometime a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago or so now. Um, that's a catastrophe, as our uh, lovely coach right. of our uh, rival Tar Heels, and it was, I'd Good. call it a slight, I'd call it a touch ironic. He related yeah. the story to the media of a conversation he had while getting a massage that uh, no doubt I'm sure costed a good deal of money. He called Just, his uh, he called his season a catastrophe and more of a disappointment really. Yeah. His masseuse tried to tell him it was a disappointment. He said it depended which end of the expensive massage you were sitting on, whether or not you were uh, mired in there a catastrophe, especially with the So uh so disappointment and that's a fresh perspective from Tyler Everett on sports as always. Yeah. Not a catastrophe, just a disappointment. That's sports for this week. Up next is Evan Garris with our editorial. Nothing's gonna get me down Free as the wind Free as the wind It's been a long, long time Since I could say I felt so fine Viewpoint on Eye on the Triangle Evan's opinions on the latest news 
The views in this editorial do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. After we elected our first African-American president, the media wanted us to believe that with him we had inaugurated a new era of post-discriminatory solidarity in which bigotry went the way of UNC's basketball season. Well, then a few days passed. All it took was the loud mouths of a few pompous pundits to end that momentary fantasy. The ugly truth is that prejudice is alive and well, if not flourishing. Whether it's in the form of words spoken by public figures or written on the walls of NC State's free expression tunnel, we as a nation continue to discriminate and do so with astounding tenacity. The Southern Poverty Law Center lists 30 active hate groups in North Carolina alone, not including one entrenched on the campus of one of our sister universities operating under the moniker of Students for Western Civilization. Overt and pernicious laws are being passed by state legislators across the country that dehumanize gay men and women and confine them to being members of a de facto second-class citizenry. Even when we attempt to discuss serious issues surrounding our immigration system, the language of the debate quickly defines itself in terms of us and them. Fear is what lies at the heart of this matter. It's an irrational fear, the fear that allowing two men or two women to legally marry will somehow muck up the institution of marriage for everyone else and destroy families across the country, the fear that illegal immigrants will drain our economy dry. What's even worse is that we seemingly possess a collective inability to broach these subjects without cringing. Whenever the opportunity arises to confront and discuss our fears and prejudices like grown men and women, we recoil with a Victorian squeamishness. Yes, our fears are uncontrollable to dis- or uncomfortable to discuss, but by acknowledging them, we present ourselves with an opportunity to learn that there really isn't reason to fear at all. I implore anyone listening to open your mind and attempt to walk a day in the shoes of the other. Break down barriers to understanding because we're not all that different. As usual, we want to hear your thoughts about my thoughts, so should you feel a strong need to opine, send your pithy comments to publicaffairs at wknc.org. The views in this editorial do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, student media, or NCSU. This is for my people who want to take it to a whole nother level that they never been to before. I said this is for my people who held me on their backs for so long. Everything I do is for my people. Let's celebrate the beauty of our people. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1 FM. I'm Seja Hindi. Though we don't usually do this, all of our segments this week are Black History Month related, or rather civil rights related, since it is the last week of Black History Month. Um, these issues are definitely not uncommon to NC State. You know, NC State had a noose incident last year, um, and after Obama's election in the Free Expression Tunnel, uh, four students were, uh, I guess, charged because they had painted threats um, against the president. So... Even now, we are, you know, still facing these issues. In VIP, we talked to some civil rights activists about their involvement in the civil rights movement and kind of their views for the future. In Hear This, we take a look at the history of some freedom songs. And even our music clips in this episode are uh, civil rights related. Why don't you tell us about that, Mike? It, it's a loose connection, Seja, but I, I picked three songs by a band called The Beast. Uh, they're from Durham. They are... Very socially conscious. Those songs are called, one uh, One is My People. That's one that just played. Another one is called Freedom. Uh, no secret there what that's about. And then the third one is called Professor X. Not Charles Xavier from X-Men, but more likely Malcolm X. And then there's two other songs that are sort of a looser connection to freedom or something like that. Max Indian, 
uh, with a song called Free as the Wind, and then I Was Totally Destroying It, the song called Done Waiting. So those are all local songs that are some more loosely than others connected to this idea of freedom and, and civil rights as well. So That sounds good. All right, so make sure to stay tuned for VIP once we get back. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Eye on the Triangle's VIP. Talking to people that matter. On February 1st, 1960, a group of 20 black students from North Carolina A&T refused to leave F.W. Woolworth's company store in Greensboro, North Carolina, where they were denied service. This sit-in was set to spur many more protests for the next decade of the civil rights movement. 43 students were arrested in a sit-in at Cameron Village in Raleigh, North Carolina, a week later. A group of students from Shaw University and St. Augustine's College formed the group SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, on Shaw University's campus two months after the Greensboro sit-in to direct these demonstrations which grew to have more than 1,000 volunteer members. These freedom riders, as the demonstrators are now called, faced opposition, mobs, and arrests along the way. But as can be seen, North Carolina saw its fair share of activism. In honor of Black History Month and the 50th anniversary of the Greensboro sit-in, Allison Harmon and I spoke to civil rights activists about their involvement in the movement for this week's VIP. I talked with Bob Zellner, a civil rights activist from Alabama who now lives in New York. He gives some insight into his experience with the movement, as well as the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC, which was started at Shaw University in 1960 after the Greensboro sit-in at Woolworths earlier that year. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Could I just get you to talk a little bit about your experience in the civil rights movement? I grew up in lower Alabama which we call L.A. sometimes, but um, I I grew up there. Uh, My father was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. My grandfather was a member of the Klan. uh, My mother and dad were both graduates of Bob Jones College, which became Bob Jones University. So I came from a kind of conservative, fundamentalist Christian background. But actually, North Carolina had a great uh, influence on me and my family. My older brother, Jim, who was, uh, we were both ministerial students, uh, he went to the Duke uh, Divinity School, and he got involved in the, uh, in the early sit-ins when they started on February 1st, 1960, in Greensboro. Oh, uh, yeah. Spread to the, to the Triangle, uh, the Tri-Cities area. And um, actually, I also remember speaking at uh, UNC at Chapel Hill on uh, October the 28th, 1961, after my first arrest, which was in Mississippi uh, in October of 1961. And um, I actually had gotten involved in the civil rights movement while a college student in, at Huntington College in Montgomery when I met Dr. King and uh, Rosa Parks, and uh, they started me on a life of crime. <laughs> and did you do most of your activism in one place, or did you move around wherever you were needed? Uh, no, I was uh, involved in most of the major campaigns of the civil rights movement after 1960 and 61. Uh, I was the first white Southerner to be a field secretary for SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which grew out of this uh, lunch counter sit-ins that started right there in North Carolina. And um, I was uh, with the organization from 1961 in the fall when the staff was formed. I was an original staff person of SNCC. I was with SNCC until it became an all-black organization in 67 and 68, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was arrested 18 times in uh, five or six uh, southern states uh, throughout all of the uh, most violent and the most uh, active civil rights campaigns in the South. 
So it seems like you went through a whole lot during the civil rights movement. What got you started and why did you keep getting invested even after all the arrests and the violence? Well, uh, I actually got started uh, because I was given a paper in sociology class to write about the racial problem. And uh, myself and four students went to meet Dr. King and Rosa Parks, who had made the, uh, the Montgomery bus boycott. And we were told by our professor we couldn't go to the uh, meeting in Montgomery where Dr. King was going to speak, and some of the SNCC people were going to be there from the sit-ins. SNCC had just started at the time. And we said that we didn't think that we would be arrested, and we had a responsibility to go and investigate what was happening in Montgomery. But So Dr. King said, the church is surrounded and you're going to be arrested. And we said, we need to escape. And Dr. King laughed and said, well, you remember we, we told you that you might be arrested if you came to the meeting. We said, well, actually we need to try to escape so we won't get our parents in trouble and the school in trouble. So he said he'd go out the front and Reverend Abernathy and uh, Mrs. Rosa Parks could take us to the basement and maybe we could escape that way. So as we were waiting for Dr. King to go out the front, Mrs. Parks placed her hand on my elbow and she said, I had met her before, so she said, Bob, eventually if you see something wrong, you're going to have to do something about it. You're going to have to take action. So actually, that's the way I got involved in the civil rights movement. What was it like to meet Dr. King? It sounds kind of like he wasn't that famous. Was it a big deal to meet him at the time, or was it just another leader? Well, I, I think I know what you're, you're uh, getting at, and yes, you're absolutely right. Dr. King was a normal person. He was not St. Uh, Martin Luther King, as he's been uh, held up now. He was a kind of small in stature, very smart, very courageous, but uh, he was a normal person with a great sense of humor. And he took a great interest in us students. Um, you know, and he was already famous. We had no idea that he'd be one of the most famous people in the world and the only person to have a, a U.S. holiday named for him. And we had no idea that uh, uh, Mrs. Parks, whom, who worked with us very closely, uh, would uh, be seen as the mother of the modern civil rights movement. We were just doing what? we thought was necessary as students, and then they challenged us to take it further. And as Southerners and as white Southerners, we came to see that we had a responsibility to take action against the uh, racial history of the South. Just going back to your story, did you escape that time or did you get arrested? Oh, oh no, we, we were able to get back to campus, but uh, the five of us were told we had to resign from school. The Klan burnt crosses around our dormitory that night. The president um, held us up, uh, the college held us up to ridicule in the public press. Uh, we were called into the office of the attorney general of the state of Alabama to explain. Uh, he said we were under communist influence. And I remember saying, you mean there's communists in Alabama? And he said, no, but they've come through here and you've fallen under their influence. So young people today uh, just don't have any concept that you could be asked to leave school, you could be arrested, you could be beaten, you could be shot just by doing things that Americans are supposed to take for granted. And as I got involved in the civil rights movement, and especially through North Carolina, the right to vote became a huge thing. And uh, that's what we worked on mostly in, in SNCC and also public accommodations. Young people today can't imagine that you couldn't go white and black and sit at the food court or uh, lunch counter.
about being arrested. Have you been involved in the civil rights movement from that day when you met Dr. King to now? I mean, is, is there still a civil rights movement going on? Oh, yes. There's still a very active civil rights movement going on. Uh, our 50th anniversary of the formation of SNCC is uh, going to be well in April, April 15th through the 18th in Raleigh right there in the Tri-City area. Uh, and uh, it's a direct result of, of the sit-in movement that started in Greensboro February 1st, 1960. So uh, it's still going on. We're going to have thousands of young people there uh, from all over the country. The president, well, the first black president of the United States, will probably come to speak to the young people. There's a huge movement going on. In fact, uh, my memoir uh, of my civil rights experience is being made into a film now by uh, Spike Lee and my friend Barry Brown from Alabama. So there's a little, tremendous amount of activity going on. And I've stayed active even though I became a university teacher teaching um, history and civil rights. I've stayed active. The last time I was arrested was here in uh, Southampton, New York, at the Shinnecock Indian Reservation when uh, the local burial ground uh, at the reservation was being bulldozed for housing development. And my arm was broken. I was arrested. So uh, that was just uh, seven years ago. So we've still been very active all along. And what would you say the differences between the civil rights movement of the 1960s and the civil rights movement of today are? Are you fighting for the same things? Uh, we are fighting for many of the same things uh, because the, it's an unfinished revolution. Uh, as a history teacher, I, I say that there was a liberal consensus through 1964 and 1965 to uh, integrate public accommodations and to assure that all citizens could vote. But there's still a huge economic and social revolution still to be made in this country. And uh, the reason I say that is that, you know, women's rights are being pushed back and women's rights were uh, won after the civil, ri civil rights movement. They constantly try to turn these things back. Uh, habeas corpus has been ended in this country. Uh, we have lawyers who have uh, recommended uh, the use of torture. We now have a present administration, even though it's liberal, that is not uh, bringing those people to any kind of investigation. So we've lost a lot of the uh, liberties that we had even in 1960. We've given them up uh, in the name of fighting against terror. So civil libertarians now have to come back, librarians, ministers, teachers, students, and so forth, and say, we want our rights back. So it's a whole new struggle. The movie that's coming out, why? I feel like... Why is Son of the South coming out now? It seems this movie could have come out in the, the late 90s at least or 10 years ago. What message do you want to get across today? Well, uh, the reason it's coming out now is that, first of all, it is the 50th anniversary of a lot of the uh, activities in the civil rights movement. And with uh, uh, President Obama becoming our president and the tremendous youth mobilization that helped make him president, uh, it's now back on the front burner. People are paying attention to what happened in the civil rights movement, what was unfinished business, what needs to be finished now. And a lot of the problems that we faced then that were national problems are now international problems. There's a whole new um, uh, trafficking in uh, women and children and so forth. There's new types of slavery around the world. There's uh, genocide in Darfur. So um, there's a tremendous upsurge in uh, young people being interested in social problems 
and taking action. So that's why Spike Lee and um, others think that to make a, a movie called Son of the South, from my book, The Wrong Side of Murder Creek, a white southerner in the civil rights movement, is to show that we were together, black and white, uh, young and old, uh, men and women in that time, and we need to come back together. There's been a period in our country of identity politics where black people go their own way, gays go their own way, women go their own way. Now we're coming back together and saying we still have a lot of fighting to do because the right wing always is trying to push back. On that note, what can, especially students and young adults, what can they do to get involved in this new civil rights movement? Uh, Well, one thing they can do is realize that um, it's very important to come to things like the 50th anniversary of the sit-in movement and see the museum there in Greensboro. North Carolina played a tremendously important role in the civil rights movement. And all the southern states are now having uh, museums and programs to go back to the old history. So learn the old history. It's very, very important uh, to young people to see that that history has not been finished. There's a lot left to be done and um, new, uh, new battles to be fought. So we have to, Martin Luther King said, if you don't find something worth dying for, you might not be worth living. So life has to be about more than getting a good education and getting a good job and living well. You have to give back. Son of the South is set to premiere next year, 2011. If you'd like more information on the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee's conference, go to www.sncc50thanniversary.org. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1 FM. I'm Saja Hindi. Today I sat down with the co-founder of the International Civil Rights Museum and Center, Earl Jones. Jones is also a state representative for House District 60 and was and continues to be a civil rights activist. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Jones. You had told me earlier that you were involved in the late civil rights movement. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, in 1967, uh, I was a freshman at North Carolina Central University, and I participated in several marches um, downtown uh, protesting segregation. Um, So that was my extent uh, of uh, involvement. On February 1, 1960, when the sit-ins first occurred uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina, by the Greensboro, uh, North Carolina A&T, University 4. I was 11 years old growing up in rural part of Alamance County, North Carolina, Burlington uh, area. What made you decide to co-found the International Civil Rights Museum in Greensboro? Well, it's a very uh, significant historic event, and that's a historic site as a result of what happened on February 1, 1964, where four young men from North Carolina A&T State University went down to the Woolworth store, sat down at the counter, ordered some food, and therefore um, challenged Jim Crow segregation and second-class citizenship um, for black Americans uh, at that time. It was a very dangerous thing to do. Uh, It ignited and actually invigorated the civil rights movement. It brought in hundreds of thousands of new participants in the movement, and specifically students throughout the South and throughout the country. What can you tell us about this new museum? Well, the uh, International Civil Rights Museum and Center, as I had indicated, is in honor of the four students from North Carolina A&T State University that sat down and sparked the sit-in movement as a strategy of civil disobedience to overcome oppression and, and injustice here in America. And uh, that uh, is the site where it actually happened. So it's basically sacred ground, and I felt that that should be preserved 
not only the, the Greensboro Four, but also the hundreds of thousands of American citizens that participated in the uh, civil rights movement to help change America and destroy Jim Crow segregation in America. Okay. So you've been an activist pretty much throughout your life. You said you were involved in protests earlier. Why is this so important to you? Well, uh, I've been an activist. It really bothered me and pained me once I became politically conscious as a student at North Carolina Central University that African Americans have been treated uh, uh, how, how we've been treated over the years. And I just, I just had a passion uh, and a love for my people, black people here in the hills of North America. And I felt that we've contributed uh, more than anyone else to build this country. We are American citizens. I thought it was a tragedy of the Constitution and the principles enunciated uh, by the so-called founding fathers uh, and those principles enunciated in the U.S. Constitution that African Americans were not uh, provided or given equal rights as everyone else. I thought that was an American tragedy uh, that should be changed, and, and I've committed my life to it as a student at North Carolina Central University. Uh, and subsequent to that, that's why I decided to go into uh, law and social work instead of biology, which was my passion and my love. So um, I knew that as a social worker, I could change lives and perhaps change society. But more importantly, with a, a, a legal training, I could file one lawsuit, which I've done, <laughs> by the way, and change the entire society or the entire state or change the the way people have to act and behave uh, uh, throughout the nation. Uh, uh, I guess Brown, the Brown case, um, uh, in 1954, Brown case is a good example of that, where segregation of public schools was struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court by one lawsuit, and schools were desegregated throughout the South and to a certain degree throughout certain areas of America. So um, uh, I, I, I've been committed to that, and... Um, Graduated from law school in 1976, I began to work with the um, Greensboro chapter of the NAACP. As a matter of fact, on November 3rd, 1979, the Ku Klux Klan came to Greensboro, North Carolina, and assassinated five uh, uh, union workers, uh, uh, pro-worker uh, workers. Uh, and that's when I attended my first NAACP meeting about a week after that, and two or three weeks later, Dr. the late Dr. George Simpkins, who was president of the local chapter of the NAACP, appointed me as legal counsel at the local chapter, which was a volunteer position. And I worked with the uh, Greensboro Justice Fund and other lawyers who had come in throughout the country uh, to sue the city, sue the state of North Carolina, sue various federal and state agencies. Um, and ultimately, the civil suit was, um, uh, was victorious in that the the uh, survivors uh, of the individuals who were uh, killed uh, uh, received some monetary uh, remuneration for that. And then from that particular position, I um, uh, launched a legal challenge against the city of Greensboro that in 1981 elected an all-white city council. And uh, under the Voting Rights Act, um, working on behalf of the NAACP, was able to get the city uh, through the Justice Department to get the city to move to a 531 district system, which the city operates under today, and we have African-Americans serving on the city council. Uh, that was a basic fundamental wrong. 
person without representation. One third of the of the community in Greensboro at that time was African American in 1981, uh, and they were paying taxes without representation. In 1986, I filed a lawsuit on behalf of the NAACP under the Voting Rights Act to establish a district form of government to elect uh, African Americans have an opportunity to elect individuals of their choice to the Gifford County Board of Commissioners. Again, before 1986, you had an all-white uh, Board of County Commissioners, Gifford County Board of Commissioners. One-fourth of the population and taxpaying citizens in Gifford County were African Americans. Again, a basic fundamental right being violated, taxation without, rep- without representation. As old as George Washington and Tom Thomas Jefferson's uh, concept of, of, um, of, of fairness and justice. And, of course, that lawsuit was victorious, and now we have three African-Americans serving on the Gifford County Board of Commissioners. As a matter of fact, my, the co-founder with me, Melvin Skip Austin, is chairman of the Gifford County Board of Commissioners presently. So that's some of my involvement, not all of it. I did establish and start an anti-poverty program in Gifford County, and that program I, I led for about 16 years, and we had an impact on about six to 8,000 families where we uh, were lifted out of pro- poverty and became self-sufficient, taxpaying citizens, and they continue to work and contribute to the community in a positive way even today. Okay. Uh, that's just a part of what I've been doing. And of course, presently I serve uh, in the North Carolina General Assembly, I also served as a member of the Greensboro City Council here in Greensboro for 18 years. So you had a cause and you fought for it. One of the criticisms, I guess, of this generation is that the youth are a lot more apathetic and are not really fighting for any cause. How do you feel like this museum might be able to combat that a little bit? Well, I don't adhere to that particular concept. When you say they, I don't know who they are, but I don't think that the younger people are apathetic no more than in general society. I mean, I, I think... Uh, uh, young people are very, uh, the times change, circumstances change, the type of injustice change. And right now, uh, as far as race, it may be a little bit more insidious, a little bit more um, institutionalized, but uh, uh, my basic um, view of uh, an interaction with younger folk, meaning 30 and under, um, is very different than what, what evidently been related to. I think a good example of that, symbolic-wise, is that the whole Obama phenomenon, so to speak. A black man being elected as president of the United States uh, in 2008 really is what um, was a phenomenal task. It took fortitude, it took hard work, it took dedication to certain principles of, of change that's better for, that, that, that would be better for America, as, as articulated by by. Um, President Barack Obama, but well, then candidate Barack Obama, and those individuals, uh, the young folk, 30 and under, 30, 21 to 30, were the key, very key, uh, to his uh, election. That's very political. They were, they were, uh, they, they, uh, they, uh, they were mindful. They, uh, they were political conscious and socially conscious, and they wanted to have a better America. So. Um, um, when I was coming up, in order to change society, you had to protest in the streets. But also, during this time with the Internet and, and the technology that we have today, a lot of it can be done among, among young people, can do 
somewhat in the suite, so to speak. Because everybody's on the Internet and they're, re- and they're you know, uh, getting their information differently than they were 30 and 40 years ago. So my experience with younger folk, I'm very optimistic, and I think America's future is looking very bright, and some of the injustices that exist today among various other groups, uh, whether you're talking about Hispanics, Hispanics uh, the whole immigration issue that has a lot of racism implied relative to targeting uh, Hispanics, um, and whether you're talking about the, uh, the, 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 the issues related to gender lifestyle, all of these issues, and also issues of economic empowerment of, of African Americans. That's the next major area, economic parity, economic re- reciprocity as to African Americans moving into the mainstream. That's the final and last uh, barrier. And I think that, um, that, that the younger folk, both uh, black and white, are more equipped um, uh, and more dedicated to helping resolve those issues in the future, uh, just as how much is resolved and dedication as we were back in the 60s, in my opinion. That is optimistic, which is great. So what do you hope the museum will achieve? Well, I, I think the museum is uh, three things. Uh, three things. Number one, it will be an educational tool and a reflection of the past and the type of sacrifice that people have to make to, to, to uh, fight injustice uh, and, and make society better. And that sacrifice can be economic where you lose your job or um, being brutalized by law enforcement. You know, uh, uh, like John Lewis was beaten, put in the hospital. I think he has a plate in his head now. And there, there are hundreds of stories. Been, uh, also going to jail, hundreds of thousands of people went to jail in order to change society for the better. And, and, but uh, also to understand that sometimes the ultimate sacrifice is given. Where you talked about the uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, who was assassinated, uh, Malcolm X, my hero, who was assassinated, uh, and the Robert and, and John Kennedy, who were assassinated. And in my opinion, there were racial implications related to that as well, political and racial. Um, uh, uh, not to mention... There's the horror of the four little girls that were uh, killed in a church that was bombed in Alabama and the, the type of carnage and uh, torture that, that, was, uh, that Emmett Till was subject to. So um, I think the museum need to, will reflect those times and what was necessary and what was needed and the sacrifice that was needed change that and, and that and, and, and that and that you can make a difference and make a, make the world better so hope the museum will educate people to that secondly I hope the museum will um, look at where we are today uh, and in light of where we were in the past understand that we need a unified uh, America we need a uh, be able to try to bring uh, to close many of the conflicts uh, uh, through that that are present throughout the world, whether we're talking about uh, China, the old type of oppression in China, or in certain parts of, of Africa, or uh, even in certain parts of Eastern Europe that still exist today. Um, so <clears throat> I hope the museum will shine light on uh, various issues that exist that need to be resolved throughout the world and, and, and in parts of America uh, as well. So that's what I hope the museum will do. And then thirdly, of course, but generations unborn, well, I'm t- generation unborn, 80, 200, 300 years from now, people can look back, see.
problems they have two or three hundred years from now. Perhaps they could use what we did as a model, as a roadmap, to try to resolve some of the problems that may plague their society um, in the future. Hopefully, it will be minimized by what we'll do in the next 30 or 40 years. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. And that was House Representative and Civil Rights Activist Earl Jones. For more information on the International Civil Rights Center and Museum, visit www.sitins.org. And you'll definitely want to get those tickets in advance. Allison and I actually drove to Greensboro this past weekend, and when we got there, they told us the tickets were sold out. Um, They're only giving the... You're only allowed to see the museum through tours for the first couple of months, so... Make sure to check it out. It's www.sitins.org. And now on to hear this. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC. This is Hear This. I'm Michael Jones, and today we sat down with Miss Tony Thorpe of the African American Cultural Center at NC State. First off, I would like to ask you, uh, what would you define as a freedom song? Well, to me, a freedom song is a song that motivates, that tells a story, that sends a strong message of struggle, but also determination. Now, when we think of the topic, uh, the one thing that most Americans automatically think of is uh, during the antebellum South. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I know that there are a lot of prevalent pieces of uh, freedom songs that are still left from that period of time. Do you have any that you know of right off the top that you could enlighten us on? Well, when I think of freedom songs, I go way back to thinking about stories that I've been told, like Follow the Drinking Gourd and Go Down Moses, those songs that were used to communicate activity that would take place on the Underground Railroad. Then as you move into the Civil Rights era, I think of songs such as Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Round. Then I think of James Brown and, you know, we got... Say it loud, I'm black and I'm I'm proud. And we got soul power and those kind of things. Even Aretha Franklin song, you know, respect. (laughs) And so even though if I'm sure an ethnomusicologist would have a definite definition, but to me, those songs inspired are the songs that inspired and define a period of history and a culture. Of course, when Bernice Reagan came to NC State. She is the founder of Sweet Honey and the Rock, and she wrote freedom songs and talked about the importance of freedom songs. Then I also think about songs such as, that are sung in church now, songs like Amazing Grace. And I was surprised to find out that the author of Amazing Grace was actually a slaveholder, and the song is about a man singing about his prayer for forgiveness and that he really believed that he once was lost and now he was found when he saw the error of his ways. So it's just interesting to learn the authors of songs and what songs really meant. 
Now, do you think most freedom songs, as we would like to call them, have developed through just time through people having these similar ideas and saying, hey, I'm going to make music off of this and I'm going to produce this, but it's still going to have a message that resonates? Yes, I think that there are new issues, so there are new freedom songs. And although some of my ancestors or people who fought during the civil rights era may disagree, but I think now that some of the a freedom song could be uh, Tupac's Keep Your Head Up. You know, he was speaking about, he was giving a voice to the voiceless in this society. And so I think that there, as the issues change, the freedom songs will change. But music is a message that transcends barriers. Now, now since we're on the topic of music as a message, what messages do you think that uh, this freedom song sent to dominant classes during the antebellum South period, especially those coming from? I think those songs such as, um, well... I guess I would more I'm more familiar with the music of the civil rights era probably. Mm-hmm. So I know that any time I heard Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Round, even if I hear that song right now, it gives me strength and encouragement and it helps me understand the obligation I have to the sacrifices that people made before me. So even if I wanted to, I, I could never sleep late if I heard ain't going to let nobody turn me around. You know, I would just get up, get ready and go out there and do what needs to be done. And I also believe that those songs should not be lost because if that is for anybody. You know, all ethnicities in this country have those who came before them who made a sacrifice. I mean, look at Eleanor Roosevelt. Look at John Brown. Their relatives are still around. Ms. Thorpe, I'd like to thank you once again for stopping by and talking to us about uh, Freedom Songs. Uh, Ms. Thorpe, of course, of the African American Cultural Center here at NC State. My pleasure. Absolutely. Keep doing what you do. It's a great thing. You are listening to Hear This on Eye on the Triangle, and I'm Michael Jones. People ready to feed the mass, ready to teach the class, ready to beat some ass. If you want it, let me hear it. If you feel it, let me near it. If you make it, let me wear it. If you got it, let me share it. Helping you see through the fog. Phenomenal product of music and God. I own the Triangles Wolfpack for the week. Dick Revis, a journalism professor here at North Carolina State University, became involved in the civil rights movement during his undergraduate days in Texas in the 60s. Thank you for joining us, Professor Revis. If you would, please describe your role in the civil rights movement. I worked in Demopolis, Marengo County, Alabama, for two summers, 1965 and 1966, with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is Dr. King's group, uh, initially with the summer program called SCOPE, which was like Freedom Summer in 1964 with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. How did you first get involved with them? Well, the times were different. You knew it was going on. People talked about it or argued about it all the time. I found myself siding with the movement in all those dorm cafeteria-type arguments. And one day I went into the cafeteria and there was a recruiting bulletin said that SCLC and SNCC were recruiting summer volunteers. 
SNCC paid nothing. SCLC paid twelve day, $12 a week. So since I had nothing, I went with SCLC. Once you found yourself committed to the SCLC, did you have any arguments over your involvement with the group? I suppose I had arguments about it for the rest of the 60s with white people in general. I mean, it, it was never, there never was a time at which Dr. King and his movement weren't controversial among whites. What exactly did working for civil rights in Alabama entail? One of the things that I, I did there and the thing I spent most of my time doing was trying to register people to vote. And this was initially before the Voting Rights Act passed, so that we had to line up people from Demopolis at the courthouse. They had to wait three or four hours in line in order to be told, usually, that there wasn't time to give them the literacy test, which none of them could pass because they were rigged. We went through a couple of months of this, and then the Voting Rights Act passed, and we started the more usual political work that goes on even today of registering people to vote and then trying to get them out at election time. We, When the people were turned around, we had them all sign affidavits saying, I waited X hours of line. And when the people were given exams and flunked, we had them write affidavits, or we wrote them and they signed them saying what had happened to them during the exam, what questions they had been asked, and so on. We sent all of this information to the Justice Department to argue that the literacy laws that governed Alabama should be struck down or prohibited, as they finally were. What was the length of your involvement? Well, I did those two summers. I did a spring break. I did Christmas holidays. And in the fall of 66, I had to do some time in jail. I think I counted once, and I forget what number it was. But on the order of six to seven months, depending on how you want to count it. In those days, time moved awful fast. Six to seven months or a year was equivalent to anyway four or five now. Okay, so summer comes to a conclusion. Spring break is over. And you have to go back to the university. Did you feel left out? Did you feel like the movement was going on without you? I mean, I knew the movement was going on without me. But I felt that college wasn't very relevant and paid less and less attention. And I think that's the experience of a lot of people who were in the movement at that time. I had a friend in Texas who who attended the Selma March, went back to Harvard or Yale and dropped out of divinity school. Did you view the black power movement as separate from the civil rights movement? No, I think the the black power phase was a logical continuation or a reflex of things that we had discovered in the earlier movement. Uh, specifically, we were trying to get people the right to vote, which black people did not have in the South. And... In 1964, SNCC organized a delegation, largely of black people, who pledged to support the nominee of the Democratic Party in the 1964 elections, who was going to be Lyndon Johnson. Everybody knew that. The so-called regular Democratic Party delegation from Mississippi, which was all white, 
would not pledge to support the party's nominee for president. So the SNCC workers said, you should seat us instead of the white delegation because we're going to vote for the Democratic candidate for president. The Democratic Party refused to do that. And when that happened, SNCC said, we can no longer depend on the cooperation of even liberal whites. We have to seek to get into power in the areas where we don't have to depend on whites, which is the black belt of the South. And that's where the black power slogan came from. We're going to do this ourselves. And for that matter, it worked in the black belt of the Deep South. Their candidates were elected in the after the Voting Rights Act was passed. Was it ever awkward being a white male fighting for black civil rights? It always felt awkward. When you were among whites, people were hostile to you. When you were among blacks, people were suspicious of you. It, uh, I mean, to this day, pretty much most interracial con- contact is, at least at some level, tense. It's going to be that way till we solve the problem. How would you explain the problem? I won't say that everyone who was in the movement saw it this way. But those of us who were in it full time realized that the movement was about equality, which is a very broad term and a way of thinking. We knew, for example, that someday a gay liberation movement would come that would be similar to our movement. And we thought that was a good idea. We figured this out. And the idea that the movement was only about legal equality, about citizenship, Uh, was just smaller than anything we were trying to do. The essential problem that black people in the South had is that they were poor. And that problem, which goes back to the maldistribution of wealth that started with slavery, that problem has not been solved yet. So today black people are citizens, but they still face a legacy of poverty that very little has been done to remedy. Would a new civil rights movement need to be radical to solve this problem? The old civil rights movement was radical. No two ways about it. Dr. King was radical. He was not a moderate or a liberal. And it got stopped. It got strangled. And so if a new movement comes about, I guess it's going to have to start where we had to leave off. And that means it's going to be as radical as we were. Are you able to offer any insight for alleviating racial tension? I think, first of all, people ought to talk about race more openly. White people don't want to do it anymore. And I think that both races have to realize that so long as the problem of economic equality isn't resolved, there will be conflict even among the most well-meaning blacks and the most well-meaning whites meaning racism is something that is in our atmosphere or in our surroundings as we grow up. It never disappears. It will only disappear when the material conditions responsible for it disappear. How did your involvement in the civil rights movement come to a conclusion? Well, I don't know if it did come to a conclusion. I guess the last instance was when I was let out of jail in 1966. Uh, 
one of the things that happened is that the black power people told us white civil rights workers that they wanted us to leave. And I understood why. They said racism is a problem that resides among whites whom we can't talk to. You can go on their side of town and talk to them. And specifically, they told us we could talk to them about the Vietnam War. So that's what I did. I went back to my side of town. I had been living among blacks in the movement. Went back to the white side of town and started trying to talk about income and power relationships in the United States, talking to white folks. Is your role as an instructor at NC State an extension of your involvement in the civil rights movement? Well, look, I think having been a civil rights worker is kind of like getting saved, (laughs) meaning it changes the way you look at life until you die. And so I would say that if, if I'm lucky, everything I do reflects the experience that I had in Alabama. I think you will see much the same thing among veterans of the Vietnam War. When they came back, they were not the same people. It stays with you through life. Eye on the Triangle Wolfpack of the Week, Professor Revis captures his experiences in the civil rights movement in his book, If White Kids Die. He continues his activism, recently publishing his work, Catching Out, The Secret World of Day Laborers, where he chronicled his experiences as a day laborer to bring their plight and mistreatment to the forefront. Eye on the Triangle would like to thank our Wolfpack of the Week for sharing an active perspective on the civil rights movement. For more information on Professor Revis, please visit www.wknc.org slash EOT. If you ever need to take a journalism class at NC State, you should definitely take a class with Professor Revis. It won't be easy, and his humor is something to get used to. Interesting, but <laughs> Interesting. Um, but it, you'll definitely learn a lot from it. Um, so despite the fact that we're giving you an online exclusive with sound bites about what NC State students think is the biggest race issue at the university right now. Um, we are still running into Biko Gamet's show. Sorry about that. Um, but before we wrap it up, make sure to follow us at WKNC EOT. And as always, send, you, send us emails um, with comments, suggestions, and questions to WKNC, to, sorry, public affairs at WKNC.org. Now, Allison has a birthday shout out. On this very special day in a year that's not to be named, my grandfather was born. Um, just giving him a birthday shout out, like Sasha said. <laughs> um, um, happy birthday. And that wraps up another episode of EOT. Make sure to tune in next week.